0: Welcome to this episode of the Farm Exec Podcast. I'm Meg Rivers, the managing editor of the Pharmaceutical Executive Magazine and your podcast host. The Farm Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights to master the science of success. On this week's episode, I speak with Lung Yi Cheng, Vice President of Cell and Gene Therapy at Amerisource Bergen, about, you guessed it, cell and gene therapy, specifically commercialization. We talk through quite a few things, but specifically, we talk about cell and gene therapy, or CGTs, I'll call it for short commercialization strategies, um, how are CGTs unique from other products? what does he wish that companies knew about commercialization strategies when to start your commercialization strategy common knowledge gaps key challenges patient access regulatory requirements market access we really cover quite the gamut but before we jump into the conversation let's first hear a quick word from our sponsor and then we will be right back with the interview hey there Andy Studna, co-host of the Applied Clinical Trials podcast here. Check out brand new episodes of the ACT podcast every two weeks on Tuesdays at 10. And you can find past episodes plus much more by logging on at AppliedClinicalTrials.com. Lung Chang, thank you so very much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you about cell and gene therapies and commercialization.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. I'm going to jump right into the first question, and one thing I always like to ask folks is the very, you know, basic question of tell me about yourself. And specifically, could you tell me about the work that you've done in the cell and gene therapy commercialization space?
1: Absolutely. I joined America's Bergen about a year ago in April 2022 after spending about a decade in BioPharma before America's Bergen, Most recently, I was the head of global market access for PicTda cell therapy franchise. I've been in specialty medicines, helping access with oncology-related diseases uh, throughout my whole professional journey, essentially. I, When I was at Takeda, my focus was really around cell therapy in the last couple of years. Now, Amerisource Program, for many of you, is known as a leader in pharmaceutical distribution. Now, some of you may not realize is that we have a vast provider network, Uh, with all the health systems in the U.S. and we offer essentially end-to-end commercialization services to biopharma companies. And that's what really attracted me to this position because along the cell and gene therapy value chain, MSOS program can really help with regulatory affairs, clinical trial logistics, commercial distribution, patient support and patient services and market access there are so many services and so much value that we can bring to the table. And that's what's so unique about a program.
0: Awesome. Let's just jump kind of into the basics of cell and gene therapy and commercialization. So how would you define CGT for short commercialization strategies? What does it encompass and how is it unique from other products?
1: That's a great question, Meg. And maybe before I go into kind of what's different and what's the same, I like to start with maybe an analogy. So I, I'm based in Boston and I'm a big music fan. So one of my music groups here is the Boston Symphony Orchestra. So the way I think about cell and gene therapy, it's almost like conducting a symphony piece. Now, if you contract cell and gene therapies with biologics, for example, it's not necessarily that you have different players in your pit, right? You have the wind players, you have the violin players. You have a lot of the same groups, but what's really different is the precision that's required when it comes to cell and gene therapy. So I love both Mozart and Mahler, but, the analogy that I would use is that cell and gene therapy is more like playing a Mahler piece, very complex symphony piece where you need to make sure that everybody's on point to make sure that you can deliver, in our case, what a patient deserves. So that's kind of how I think about it. Now, specifically, your question is around what does it entail and what's different? From a Schultz-Bergen's perspective, especially, there's five areas that we really focus on when it comes to cell and gene therapy, starting with regulatory affairs, logistics for both clinical and commercial products, distribution, patient support and patient services, and last but not least, market access, pricing, and reimbursement. Now, I'll just use logistics as an example. Um, What's really different for cell and gene therapy is what I would call the three T's when it comes to logistics. You really need to think about the time criticality, and you think about the tracking of the product, and you think about the temperature of the product that you're delivering. So because of these unique requirements, just around logistics, there's a lot of considerations and a lot of experience that's needed to make sure that you can pull through so that patient can receive the product that he or she deserves.
0: I liked your music metaphor. That was a very interesting way to describe it. Out of curiosity, would you say all biologics to some extent require that precision, or is cell and gene therapy even more so than the average, average air quotes, biologics?
1: I would say cell and gene therapy definitely are just on a different level in terms of the complexity and the precision. Obviously, we work with many biologics right now as well. I worked in the biologic space. So biologics in a way are more like a Mozart piece. Again, Mozart is great. Mahler is great, but you just need different skill sets and different experience. And for me, cell and gene therapies are Mahler symphonies.
0: I love that. I'm always down for a good metaphor. (laughs) My next question for you is, what do you wish companies knew about commercialization strategies and what are some of the common knowledge gaps?
1: Another great question, and I appreciate you asking this one. One of the things that we hear very often and see quite often is this transition from clinical to commercial Again, if I bring it back to distribution, in non-cell gene therapy space, there is more of a clear break between your clinical trial logistics and commercial distribution. I think for a lot of companies, their clinical trial team will hand that over to their commercial distribution team. There's a handoff there. For cell and gene therapy, you, you really cannot play this relay race It is a football team everybody has to tackle together because what's really unique, especially for cell therapy is that your clinical trial logistics and supply chain is more, more, most likely your commercial distribution plan. So if you don't really think about and plan for your commercial distribution, when you're still designing your pivotal trial, you more often than not see delays and other challenges and issues that arise. So from our perspective, the ability to work with a partner who can help you future-proof your trial design and your channel strategy in a way is immensely helpful. And I would encourage all the different companies to really think about these downstream strategy and implications as early as possible. And I think across the different areas for cell and gene therapy, you can never be too early with your planning.
0: You knew the question I was going to ask next, which was how early? So, I mean, you mentioned it, you can never be too early, but like, what is, is there an ideal kind of timeframe for when to start thinking ahead?
1: Yeah, so it really depends on, again, the areas that you're thinking about. I would say for commercial distribution, for example, we typically talk to companies 12 to 18 months before their launch across the board. For cell and gene therapies, I think at a minimum 24 months before, if not earlier. So that's, that's distribution. For market access, I would say even earlier, when you're starting your pivotal trial design, you should start thinking about your pricing and reimbursement uh, strategy and implications. So that can be as early as three, four years before launch, really depending on when you start your pivotal trial.
0: So if I'm understanding correctly, then folks should, you know, who are working on a given, you know, drug product, be thinking about it at the very beginning, even if that drug product doesn't actually become commercialized. Like, you need to have that plan in place in the hopes that everything goes through and, it, you know, it's proven to be effective in clinical trials. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. And Another example I can give you is that even before the pivotal trial design, right, Some of the companies that may be thinking about how they're going to deliver their cell or gene therapy. Is it going to be in a vial? Is it going to be in a bag? So decisions like this would have downstream implications as to how you're going to move your products around the world. So there's a lot of interdependencies that are critical for successful commercial launch. And I think that's why it's so important to really work with somebody if you don't have that internal expertise Who's been there, done that, if you will, so they can again help you prepare for those future scenarios.
0: If you don't mind joining me on this tangent, I am curious. So it's my understanding that there's autologous and allogeneic cell therapies, and I think it's the autologous that uses the person's own cells. What are some of the unique commercialization challenges for that? Because I used to work over at Pharmaceutical Technology and BioPharm International, and I spoke with like the manufacturers. And folks who worked on these and they're like, it's such a problem, you know, kind of manufacturing it as quickly as possible and getting it to the patient. So what is that like for you specifically kind of working in more downstream and I suppose like delivery of product?
1: Yes. And that's a great, great example. So it goes back to my earlier comment around precision, right? To your point, autologous cell therapy is one patient, one therapy, So it's really a life or death scenario that we face with these patients. That's how important it is. So for us, along the different areas that we help with, right, logistics, how do you make sure that you can bring the therapy to a patient, no matter where they are in the world? That's very important. How do you make sure that the payer is willing to reimburse for the drug because of the cost, because of the lack of options these patients have. That's how important it is, I think, when it comes to that coordination. Because ultimately, this is around the patients. And I think in our field, we talk about patient centricity a lot. Cell and gene therapy is really an area where patient centricity is at the core, what we do. And when I say we, it's not just nurse or and I believe that's the same perspective that providers have, pharma companies have, than many, many other players in the ecosystem.
0: Thank you. Okay, so the next thing I wanna talk to you about is, how can cell and gene therapy developers prepare for and overcome key challenges, including those related to patient access, regulatory requirements, and market access?
1: Sure. So we started talking about market access a little bit already, and I spend the majority of my career in market access. So I do have a soft spot there, but it is also very important because ultimately you have to be able to ensure that the patients have access to the therapy that you've developed developed over a decade or longer. So it goes back to that integration or integrated strategy that every company should be thinking about. It is not just market access separate from regulatory requirements. So again, how do you make sure that you have the right subject matter experts sitting at the table to develop those strategies? An an example I can give you is around endpoint selection, right? So you talked about patient access regulatory considerations, market access, how do you ensure that you pick the right endpoint or endpoints that are A, patient relevant, and B, meet the regulator's requirements, and C, the payer's expectations. In oncology, for example, are you looking at just the complete response rate or your overall response rate how much of the duration of response can you capture? These are all critical questions for trial design, but these decisions have implications, again, across regulatory access and patients. So that's just one of many examples as to why you really need to think about your integrated strategy.
0: You had mentioned having like all the experts at the table. And I feel like obviously that's super important, but especially so for cell and gene therapies because they're so complex. I feel like a lot of the folks that I speak to will often talk about like having talent being a a difficulty like related to, you know, just uh, keeping the talent or, you know, folks moving around in the industry. What have you seen for that? Like how, how do you like keep, find, maintain, you know, the excellent talent in CGTs?
1: I guess I have a glasses half full perspective. It's right. I think, you know, the talent in selling genius is is hard to find. But the good news is that since the approval of Kim Ryan's or Jansma in 2017, 2018, what I've seen is that people have moved around within the ecosystem. And you see a lot of examples on the pharma side where people who used to work for first two, three uh, companies that launched then now helping bring these therapies with smaller biotech companies to the market. From a vendor perspective, we've also seen this maturity of services and offerings that these companies are bringing to the table, and we believe that we are one of them. So again, yes, there's a challenge there, finding the right talent. I think Marshall has been lucky in that we've got a lot of internal expertise from what we've been doing over the last decade or longer, but also our very focused effort to make sure that we hire the right experience and expertise from externally so we can have a perfect mix of perspectives.
0: I love it. Always love a good uh, glass half full person. I'm definitely a glass half empty kind of person. We're gonna balance (laughs) each other out here.
1: (laughs) Well, at least you're honest with yourself. That's what important (laughs) are
0: Always too honest. So my next, I do want to jump back to the allogeneic cell therapy specifically. So the European Commission recently approved the world's first allogeneic cell therapy. How does planning for allogeneic cell therapies differ from autologous cell therapies and gene therapies?
1: I think there's two things there. I think the first one is the value proposition for allogeneic cell therapies for the most part is really around this off the shelf concept, right? So there's less waiting, less pain-to-vain time, and, and that's really, really exciting. But how do you execute successfully, right? To make sure that your therapy shows up at the right time when the infusion centers are ready to use the product. That's really important because with algenic cell therapies, you still have the tracking need to think about. You still have the low temperature that you need to manage. So, In a way, it is easier, but it's all relative. I think it's still very, very complex for allergenic cell therapies. And to that end, how do you store these therapies is another question, right? Because you really want to be able to bring these allergenic cell therapies to more patients over time. So how do you plan your storage facilities and your network globally, especially is another critical aspect. I think from our perspective, if you think about that growth across the U.S. and Europe or uh, Asia Pacific, over the next years that need or demand for cryogenic storage and transportation is going to grow between 30 and 40%. And because of that, through our world career business at Mer- at we've doubled our cryogenic storage capacity to meet that demand. So allergenic is very exciting. And like you said, it's here, right? I think, you know, a couple of years ago, people were asking, when is it going to arrive? When is it going to arrive? Well, it is here. And we need to make sure that we have the right plans and strategy to make sure that, again, these therapies can be brought to the right patients.
0: You had talked about storage of these products and I'm just out of curiosity during the kind of the heart of the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a lot of talk about transporting of the vaccines and making sure they were stored at the proper temperature and all of that. Has anything been learned about that sort of the process, like from the pandemic being like, okay, if we need to move things in bulk and quickly, this is what we can do from, I don't know, point A to point B. And it's okay if like, you know, I know this is a spontaneous question, so feel free to, to weigh in or not as you'd like.
1: <laughs> well, I think we learn every day, right? So, so there's definitely learnings there, but I think what's distinct between COVID vaccines and cell and gene therapies or cell therapies, especially, is that when you're looking at cell therapies in terms of the temperature control, is. Minus 150 to minus 180 Celsius. So it's much, much colder than even COVID vaccines. So from that perspective, then you have different considerations. But to your point, if you think about how to bring these vaccines to patients more quickly, more broadly, I think there's lessons to be learned around efficiency right? How do you have reliability around your supply chain? So I think there's a lot to unpack there, but uh, definitely learnings for us.
0: So I always love to give those loaded questions during interviews.
1: (laughs) That's what makes it fun. (laughs) (laughs)
0: All right. My next question for you is, so as more cell and gene therapies enter the development pipeline and competition, I'm sure will intensify, What should companies prioritize to demonstrate their product's value, like how it's different or, you know, more therapeutically helpful and, you know, however you want to define it? And when should that planning start?
1: So I'll start with the last question and the same message. The planning should start as early as possible. I think this is another great question in that for companies that are launching um, in the next couple of years, in the way the, the expectations are set with providers and, and payers and regulators even, right? Because we have in the U.S. more than 20 cell gene therapies now. So people are used to a certain uh, workflow. They expect products to arrive at X time. Obviously things change because every drug is still different, right? It goes back to my earlier musical analogy. It's like every symphony is different. You no know, symphonies are, are, are alike. However. People do expect the operational efficiency, right? From provider perspective, you have to be better than your than your competitors. Otherwise, why would they onboard your product if there's other choices? Right. For regulators and payers as well, I think for companies to demonstrate their value, that's going to be even more important. So again, From our perspective, how do you have those dialogues with payers and regulators, especially early, is critical. In the U.S., the good news is that CBER, the Center for Biologics, is very, very encouraging and very open to conversations. And that's a great avenue, obviously, um, to, to have. For Europe, if we can look outside of the U.S., The joint clinical assessment that will start um, in 2025, cell engineering therapies are actually wave one in terms of the products that will have to go through that process. So for any companies with aspirations globally, you really need to think about the different forums where you can take advantage of, but also think about how you're going to commercialize in, to your point, a more competitive environment.
0: The next question I have for you is, how have strategies evolved in the last five plus years since FDA approved the first gene therapy in the U.S.?
1: So similar to kind of what I just shared, the expectations are set. I think, you know, five, six years ago, because cell and gene therapy was so new and it is still new, there's a lot of openness to trying new things and that openness is still here. But I think what we hear very often and loud and clear from our provider customers, especially, is that capacity is an important consideration for them. You cannot have 10, 15 printers for 15 different therapies. The platforms that providers, the hospitals use to order these drugs all look different. So there's this cry for standardization, and there's a lot of groups in different parts of the cell Engine ecosystem that are working toward that, and that's great. And we're in on some of those conversations. So, I think this is something that companies, biopharma companies, should keep in mind, right? How do you make it easier for your provider customers so that the uptake and the administration of your therapies is as smooth as possible?
0: Out of curiosity, what are some things that can or need to be standardized? So you said that there's this cry for standardization. Are there like, you're like over here, this bucket over here, we need to work on standardizing this, this, that, and the other thing. Are there certain aspects that you think the industry is going to look to standardize in the next coming years?
1: So there's many different aspects. So one area that comes up quite often is the workflow to use a particular cell and gene therapy. So what happens on the ground is that for cell therapy especially, not only do the hospitals need to be certified by third-party organizations, they have to be certified by the pharma companies as well. So there's this commercial certification process that has to take place. If you take a step back and look at what steps are or requirements are in these processes across different companies, it's an 80-20 rule. 80% of them probably look the same, but because of the lack of standardization for every new therapy that a hospital needs to onboard, they have to go through that certification process, even though they may be doing a lot of the same things for a different therapy already, or they've just been doing the same thing for a long time so that's that's one area i think where efficiencies can be can be made and again i know there's organizations that are looking into this specifically so i think there's really other areas that that we can look into and make it easier for hospitals
0: so we talked about fda approved the first gene therapy 5 years ago let's look to the next 5 years so Where do you think the cell and gene therapy market will be in five years? And how can developers navigate regulatory changes and this evolving payer landscape?
1: So cell and gene therapy is a focus area for Sperger. And we consider this the therapy of the future. And the future is here, right? Looking into the next five years, we see autologous cell therapy, allogeneic cell therapy, and gene therapy with their share and their places in therapy. And that is really, really exciting. I think just in 2023 alone, right, we are looking at potentially 10 approvals in the cell and gene therapy space. So you know the, the science is, is advancing so quickly. So how do we make sure that you can catch up with the science in a way with a commercialization? So for us, we really think about integration, standardization, all these themes um, that I've been talking about a lot. So very recently, we launched the Cell and Gene Therapy Integration Hub. And without going into the specifics, The idea is really to improve the visibility into the product journey and the patient journey throughout that treatment experience to really simplify the use of these therapies and to be able to provide real-time status updates to people who need the information. So it's around kind of connecting the different dots, being very digital-minded to make sure that as the volume grows um, you can you know really meet that demand.
0: Well here at the PharmaExec Exec podcast we often are talking about you know like our, our audience or the C-suite and also those up and coming who want to be part of the c-suite. So I would love to ask you our leadership tip of the week here at the podcast. So my question for you is um, what is one leadership tip that you would like to share This could be for your fellow colleagues a younger version for, of yourself. Up and coming colleagues um, who want to uh, like take part in leadership. Anything that you would like to share?
1: The one thing I would share is that you're only as good as your team. And negative you teed this up early in your questioning. How do you find talent? How do you nurture the talent? That's something that's top of mind for me because it is very complex. You really need the diversity of ideas and perspectives. I think cell engine therapy. Again, it's still relatively new. You cannot use the same playbook, right, for a lot of these new therapies. So, you know, we make sure that or I make sure that we have people with the right experience, but are also very innovative in their thinking and very collaborative. So I'm very happy that I've. I've got a great team now that i built over the last year. The broader organization is extremely supportive. So I count myself being very, very lucky. But I also don't forget that, you know, I need to make sure that the team uh, keeps performing because if they don't perform, I don't perform. So that's, that's one thing I would share.
0: I love that. Is there anything else that you want to discuss or share today that we haven't discussed yet?
1: This has been a great conversation. I think I'll feel the same question back to you. Is there anything else you'd like to talk to me about?
0: No, honestly, I just really enjoyed this conversation. I loved hearing about you know. It, it sounds like cell and gene therapies are really like while they're very young and you know we're just getting the first batch of approvals coming in. There is quite a like. And we've, we've come such a long way, but there's so much potential on the road ahead. So I'm really excited to see where things go and best of luck to you at Bergen. I'm really excited to hear kind of more about your journey.
1: Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity today.
0: Yes. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Farm Exec podcast, where we take you behind the headlines to provide expert tips from industry leaders. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at Farmexec, on Instagram at Farmexecutive, and on YouTube at Pharmaceutical Executive magazine. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of farm Exec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions or to get in touch with the editors, please email us at farmexec at mjhlifesciences.com. For sponsorship opportunities, please go to farmexec.com slash advertise. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time.